You are listening to a brand new series to First Team Podcast called First Team Podcast Extra Time with your host, John Frusciante and former professional soccer player in the United States and for the Barbados national team, Kiso Broom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of First Team Podcast Extra Time. I'm joined with Kiesel Broom. How is it going, Kiesel? Uh, all is well, all is well, you know, just enjoying life, grateful for every day. So I'm looking forward to this uh, podcast episode and mm-hmm. enjoying the rest of the week as well. Yeah, yeah, same here. So um, just an FYI to our listeners, next Tuesday we will be joined by Bill Peterson, the former North American Soccer League commissioner. Kiesel, does that name uh, ring uh, familiar to you? Yeah, he was. Uh, his mm-hmm. name was on the, that uh, NASL ball for sure. I definitely remember that name. We have two clips from Bill Peterson from my conversation with him. I spoke to him earlier. And uh, again, like I said, people will be able to hear him uh, next week, my full conversation with him. Uh, so let's hear what he had to say on the New York Cosmos, uh, because he talked about how the Cosmos don't kill leagues. People talk about that on social media, that the Cosmos, whatever league they join, they kill leagues. Their investment kills leagues. Again, not the truth, but let's hear from the man himself, Bill Peterson. And then after this, uh, Kiesel Broom will share his thoughts on that one. Well, they definitely didn't, uh, you know, destroy the league by any means. Yeah. And I think if if a person was to look at it honestly mm-hmm. uh, and with a clear vision, you'd see two things. One, you would see uh, in 2.0, uh, it was it was absolutely necessary, I think, to have the cosmos, you know, reborn. It was never going to be uh, the first team uh, that existed. The situation the players, the, the the time and place, none of that was going to ever be the same. Yet that club had such an influence, not only on the game in this country, but across the, the entire planet, that it was necessary that it's part of the league. And so, you know, it shows up as sort of the lead horse uh, in the train and, um, you know, ha- had a lot of responsibility and a lot of, expectations to live up to and quite honestly a lot of uh beliefs that people i think had had allowed to develop that weren't true anymore you know some people sort of forgot history i think both you know maybe from the club side and definitely from the fan side people forgot that you know this was a club that played in smaller stadiums and played out in long island for years and years and uh, everyone wants to remember those iconic photos in Giant Stadium, uh, and they are iconic, and they were they were very special to the game and very special to the history of the game here in this country. But that's not where they started, and uh, it took it took a lot of hard work and it took a lot of um, effort and money and investment to get to that night in Giant Stadium, uh, which they were able to do. But so that's that's one thing. I think I think the expectations of that club were always going to be a major challenge. Two, I think the ownership group believed in the Cosmos as a concept uh, like no other ownership group uh, that I'm that I'm actually aware of. Uh, maybe a couple in the NFL, but they believed so much in what this meant to people 
And I think they did their absolute very best to be stewards of that uh, reputation. And not every decision was the right one. And uh, it's easy to go back and and think about things that could have been differently, just as anyone can do with anything. Um, but I'll tell you, the effort and the belief and the money that was put into that uh, was was nothing short of a, a full 100% effort. Uh, these guys really wanted to, you know, bring back that magic. They wanted to entertain their fans. They wanted to win championships. They wanted to be in a league that was strong um, throughout from top to bottom. And they did their best. But just like the first uh, iteration of NASL, when people start to, to look at, you know, what happened with Warner and the Cosmos and stock prices and everything else, that stuff's a great legend. But the fact was there were other problems in other cities with ownership groups and depth of uh, investment available and uh, fan bases and, and just a lot of things that all sort of were also at the scene of the crime, if you will. And uh, this was no different. There were a lot of factors that uh, ultimately led to uh, what happened and, you know, not one in particular, but definitely not the cause of the cosmos or or anybody involved with that club. They they really, really, really believed in it and uh, did everything they possibly could to make it work. Kiesel, what is your thoughts on that one? Uh, he talked, Bill Peterson talked about uh, the ownership, right? Uh, Seamus O'Brien, uh, the former owner of the New York Cosmos, uh, they were really devoted, really uh, dedicated owners, right? They brought in Raul, Marco Senna, of course, big names. But I think the most interesting thing that Bill Peterson said was that uh, I guess fans of the Cosmos and just uh, fans of open soccer, they sort of lost sight of what the Cosmos once were, right? Uh, they didn't just start with all the big name players. And um, he was trying to say that even in the modern era, they needed to build towards that because now we're in D3 and things like that. But I guess that's out of uh, Cosmos ownership's control. Yeah, I mean, I think with the Cosmos ownership, they wanted to win. They had a vision, they had a passion, they had a plan of attack. They knew how they were going to get there. And to compete um, in the NASL, they were going against some quality teams. I mean, you think about the Fort Lauderdale Strikers, the owner was uh, the Ronaldo. You know what I'm saying? So he was bringing in top guys from Brazil. You know, and then you had guys like the Ottawa Fury and, you know, teams like that that had quality players, whether they were international or XMLS guys that had a lot of quality. And, you know, with no salary cap you have and you have the funds to do it, you have the capability of putting a really good product on the team and or sorry, on the pitch. And that was something that I think the Cosmos knew. And you had a great head coach and manager with, uh, you know, Gio and he his philosophy with the players that he had, it worked really, really well. And I think that's what you have to do. You have to have the vision first. You know, have to have the right manager and head coach to make it happen. And then you have to fill in all the right pieces when it comes to the players. And sometimes the players come at a higher expense. And what would you say to those fans on social media? I know I asked this question to Bill and everyone can hear that next Tuesday. Uh, but what are your thoughts on those fans on social media that talk a whole lot of rubbish uh, about the New York Cosmos, about the uh, NASL, the modern day North American Soccer League? I know that they're not around at the moment, but they're still a pending lawsuit. Uh, they're they're still around as an organization, maybe with no employees or no players or teams on the field. 
Uh, but the last time I talked to Rishi Segal, who was, or who I guess still is, the interim commissioner, he said on the record that there still is like three to four member clubs of the league. So that's shocking. But what would you say to, I guess, those haters on social media? Yeah, I mean, I think my biggest thing would be that, you know, you always hear that, you know, the slogan of the term, like, respect your elders. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the Cosmos were the foundation of American soccer. So regardless of what league they're in or, you know, where they kind of represent currently, that was what American soccer was before the MLS showed up. So I think there's a there should be a level of respect. In all honesty, when it comes to the name of the Cosmos, and that's just not even me just because I played for them and be in the organization. It's just because if you look back in history, that's just what soccer was. It was the New York Cosmos out of New York City playing in front of 70,000 fans at Giant Stadium with Pele and Beckenbauer. And that that those names hold a lot of weight, you know, and a lot of respect. And, you know, that's something that you can't take away from any club. You know, that's something you can never take away. So I think, you know, if somebody's going to, you know, throw shade or hate or whatever, you just do your homework and see what the Cosmos were and, you know, a club that's going to be in American soccer history for eternity. And we have a second clip from Bill Peterson, the uh, former commissioner of the North American Soccer League. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to to to, to know exactly how things compare today to when, to when I left. But, you know, at the time, we were, a, you know, for lack of a better term right now, a free market league. And so there were no salary caps. There were no restrictions on what an ownership group could do um, from from a salary standpoint with the players. And so from a player standpoint, it was a you know it was a seller's market, and they could go out and prove themselves and and negotiate the best deal possible. Uh, you know the reality was we still weren't generating you know billions of dollars in revenue, so there weren't going to be billions of dollars in salaries, but we were giving really, really good players uh, a lot of opportunities to earn a living, and it was a living, um, and we were giving players an opportunity to prove that they were part of the system, um, which meant sometimes they would go to other leagues and make more money, or go to other countries and make more money. And that was fine for us. That was uh, that was part of the growing process. It was also part of being uh, a member of the global, you know, the global soccer uh, membership. And and that players come and go, and it's a it's a buying sell market. Um, so we were, I think we were quite proud of 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 that. Our coaches did an amazing job. Uh, they were responsible for a lot of the scouting. Uh, they were responsible for obviously the development of a lot of players that just needed, they needed, you know, to be in the right place at the right time, surrounded by the right people, and they could shine. And we saw that week in and week out. Uh, you know, I can't tell you how many times we were on ESPN for the top plays of the week, and you know, uh, our fans were ultimately uh, excited, and we had a lot of close games, a lot of great finishes. Uh, it was a, it was a competitive league. And all those things were because we had great players and uh, great people. And, you know, I had, the, I had the fortunate opportunity to go out and meet, you know, almost every one of them at some time or another. And I would try to talk to them each year privately before the season would start, and, you know, answer any questions they had and sort of set expectations. And, you know, when you left that locker room every time, you just felt like, wow, this is a great group of, of young men who 
are here for all the right reasons. Uh, they understood the importance of the league, not only to themselves, but to future generations. And, uh, you know, rarely could we ask for more than what, what they gave us. So, you know, the whole football side of it, uh, whether it was scouting or coaching uh, or the players uh, themselves was, was really spectacular. And in a very short period of time, had become very competitive. I mean, I know people cringe sometimes, but you go back to some of these Open Cup competitions and, uh, you know, we really felt we could stand toe-to-toe with anybody in that competition and look forward to it because it was a chance for us to go out and and compare ourselves to others. And that's that's what people want to do, whether it's somebody in your in your own league or somebody in another league, you want the opportunity to play in that Champions Cup type of situation or Open Cup situation here and uh, and go up against the best and be the best. So, um, you know, we were always very proud of, of the effort that everyone gave. We were very proud of the results that we got. And again, uh, a lot of great coaches, a lot of great coaches and uh, a lot of great players. And they still exist in this country and, you know, they're, they're growing. And so hopefully somebody's going to fill that void and give them a chance to come in and, and, and make a, a, an honest living playing a game they love and entertaining people. And, you know, the system all works out, I hope. So there's a lot to discuss from that one, that clip from Bill Peterson. But Kiesel, um, he did touch on players being paid well over a living wage. So uh, I know you played for the New York Cosmos, of course, and you were involved in that league. I'm not sure if Bill Peterson personally met you, like he said there. <laughs> I'm not sure cool. if he really met you and shook your hand and, and, and talked to you uh, before the season started. But besides that, what are your initial thoughts on what he had to say? I think in terms of his, his comments, I mean, I think he's spot on. I think mm-hmm. it's something where as a as a human, right, if you have people employed for you or underneath you or any whatever you want to call it that they're making um a, a wage that they can one self-sustain themselves but if they have families that too you know and i think the product that you put on the field is you know what you're paying for and if you're paying for a ten thousand dollar player you're going to get ten thousand dollar results which isn't going to be great right um but if you're paying for 60 70 80 hundred thousand dollar player you're going to get that quality on the pitch. And I think that's that was what it came down to with the NASL, which is making sure that guys, their sole focus and only focus is playing, right? And it's not worried about getting another side job just to make ends meet or coaching because that's also there's another physical and mental side of it that, you know, you have to go through the training aspect and then whether you're standing on your feet for another five, six hours, you know, whatever the case is, at the end of the day, it takes a toll. And that's where that wage comes in because if you can provide a certain type of lifestyle and it doesn't need to be super extravagant, but if you can provide a certain type of lifestyle, the only thing that a player needs to focus on is their craft and that's playing day in and day out and week in and week out. And that also comes with the preparation and also the recovery. You know, it's a, it's a 24 hour, you know, 365 day um, type job and you have to do that consistently. Yeah, and I think a lot of fans are probably going to say, well, hey, what do you guys want the players to be paid? Millions of dollars? I think all we're advocating for is a living wage. Maybe seventy dollars to $100,000, something like that, if it's possible for these owners to pay. 
right? Um, and I don't think it's uh, stupid to ask for or for former players to advocate for. Why don't more former professional soccer players that understand the system, that know the problems, why don't they, I guess, advocate and, and maybe start some sort of maybe players association not associated with a league per se, um, because there's only a handful of professional leagues. But why don't, uh, I guess, a group of uh, former pro players uh, team up, come together, and, uh, I guess, advocate for better wages? I think the biggest thing for players that aren't going to speak out is because they're afraid to not get another opportunity because they're speaking out against the norm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Anytime that there's, you know, there's a change, and you see it just in life in itself, and there's something that goes against the, the flow of it, people try to, you know, brush under the rug or, you know, kind of you know, blackball or, you know, blacklist them, whatever the case is. So, so they kind of keep quiet. And, you know, if you're not making much money to begin with, you're going to take whatever you can. And the last thing you want to do is put yourself in a position where you're going to not be able to make the money that's even available. So be able to speak out on the issues that um, might not coincide with the, the thoughts of a coach or an owner or a fan base, you know, it's easy out the door because we'll find somebody else that'll do the same job for cheaper at the MLS level, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, especially in terms of my position as a goalkeeper, right? So I'll do yeah. one goalkeeper mm-hmm. place, right? Mm-hmm. So you're going to pay the number one top dollar because, you know, they're the one that's going to be consistently with, you know, playing. Then you have your backup, right? Your backup, you know, somebody who, say, the first goes down, they can still do the job, might not be as clean or as good, but they can still do the job, still get some results. So let's say the number one gets 100000 the number two, say, gets fifty-five, right, or sixty thousand, right. Now you have your third string. That's just that, just in case. So why would you pay a veteran goalkeeper who's been in the league for six, seven years, eighty thousand dollars to not even sit on the bench when you can get somebody out of college for half that price or less to just take batterings every day in training? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I guess you- that's why you were playing in the NPSL. Well, I think, I mean, for me, it was, it was a great, I took it as a great opportunity because mm-hmm. I was in a professional environment. Yeah. Even yeah. though I didn't get NASL minutes, I was able to play, I was able to train with the first team consistently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I obviously got some games in preseason, but I was able to still keep sharp with game minutes by yeah. playing NPSL. So worst case scenario, something did happen. At least I wasn't just not game ready. You know what I'm saying? So um, even though it wasn't at a professional level, mm-hmm. I played prof- with professional players every day and was able to keep match sharp yeah. and match fit. By playing games, so I think for me, I took it just as a great opportunity. It was my first year, you know. I I wanted to get my foot in the door and be able to prove that I could do it. So that was something that was important to me. Yeah, and I think another important point that I think a lot of fans don't uh, think about or understand is that the North American Soccer League they gave uh, players a second chance. The main example is Danny Satella. He was coming off a very bad injury. Uh, He was playing in Major League Soccer and things like that, right? Very Mm -hmm. talented player. And the New York Cosmos, ahead of their reboot season, gave Danny Satella his second chance. And he's still playing for the Cosmos today, right? He's probably still earning maybe the same sort of money. I'm not sure. I guess we're not going to comment on that one. But I guess we would put our lives on that one that during the NASL days, players were making good money. You know what I mean? So Danny Satella wasn't taking a step down. He was playing against quality players on the same wages at a very historic club. Right. And I think that's probably the biggest thing is the fact that 
Danny Zatel is a great example of a club that gave a player an opportunity. And when you, especially when you've had injuries or coming off of uh, recovering from an injury, and somebody gives you a chance, and you and they both succeed together, there's a sense of loyalty there, right? And um, even for me, like I said, I've had injuries, and the Cosmos took care of me. If I got a call tomorrow, you know, to, to go play for the Cosmos again, it would be a really good consideration. You know what I'm saying? It's just because the the love that I have for what they've done for me and helped me with my career. Um, it's definitely a uh, one of those things where I kind of like getting, I don't know why I attribute this, but like getting called up to the national team for Barbados. Anytime that they call, I'm always like, yeah, for sure. You know, it's not, there's not really like a second thought because that's how much, um, how, that's how well the Cosmos takes care of their players and the type of organization that they have there. Yeah. And maybe, uh, maybe next week or ahead of Thanksgiving, maybe we could talk about your time uh, for the Barbados national team because that seems like there's more stories behind that, right? Yeah, definitely. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of the, a lot of stories as well. Yeah, so just lastly here, um, I guess this is the status quo of U.S. soccer. It's either make it in Major League Soccer, earn somewhat of a living wage, or I guess uh, play maybe five, six years in the USL, try to make it, or you just call it quits and uh, do a day job, right? I guess that's the status quo of U.S. soccer, and I think that's where even your most hated fans, the fans that really hate the NASL, they should sort of rally behind that notion of saying, hey, the NASL was a good thing. The system was not able to provide that wage to the players. The owners were just taking on a bigger commitment. They understood the big picture and they were maybe trying to get to the D1 level. Maybe that's why they made that bigger investment. But I don't see any owner today, any league today outside of major league soccer that is making that same type of investment or even bringing in that same type of players nisa is not even doing that they're playing and they're getting players from a different player pool so Mm -hmm. i guess that's the problem in u.s soccer is that nisa is not that great uh landing spot for professional soccer players outside of major league soccer because they're not going to get a living wage. I got told at one point that some players in ISA are on about $500 a month. So you could probably make more money in local New York City soccer leagues. I got told that former and current professional soccer players make $500 per match. And this is in the Cosmopolitan Soccer League first team podcast. We will have an article on that sometime next week. But that's the two extremes. It's play locally you can make a lot of money in the offseason or it's continue to play in uh, lower division soccer and make some money you you have some housing in your market there the club provides that and uh, you're doing what you love to do but you're not making the money that you need right 100 so i have a friend that i went to school with Mm -hmm. i played soccer with a providence he lives i think in jersey but plays I think yeah. it's for what's it called Land, Lansdowne Boys or whatever that's in New York City, and he yeah, makes yeah. good good money off the side just playing with them. Yeah, that's what I was talking about. Yeah, yep, yep. I'm not sure if it's in the $500 region a game, but yeah, these guys are making really good money, right? Really good money. Mm-hmm. There's a handful of current Cosmos players that just play on the side in their off season. They play in uh, the Cosmopolitan Soccer League, and some players command upwards of $500 per match. But I guess it depends what type of player it is. I guess your soccer resume, right? 
Uh, I don't mm-hmm. think every player commands that fee, but I was talking to one player and he was saying that it's not about the money for me. I just want to stay fit. The Cosmos season is very short at the moment. I want to stay fit. So exactly. I think they see it as a long-term thing, not a short-term thing, because I think there's probably a lot of players that see it as a short-term career and they want to make as much as they could and they want to command that high fee no matter where they're playing, right? Um, so I guess there are some loyalties when it comes to the game. Oh, yeah, 100%. 100%. And yeah. just lastly, before we go here, can you just answer that question of what do you think has to change in U.S. soccer for players to have that system, right? I guess the obvious answer is D2, right, is having a, a proper Division two league. But like what I said earlier, the North American Soccer League Bill Peterson said it. He said, we were not making billions of dollars to pay billions of dollars in wages. So these owners weren't making a lot of money off of their team. They were losing money. That's why the league's not around anymore because it just wasn't sustainable. I guess that's where Anissa is taking, I guess, the smarter approach maybe. But players do need to receive a, a living wage eventually. There needs to be more leagues outside of Major League Soccer. So where do you think we go for that? I think it comes down to, honestly, um, a player's union that stretches all across professional platforms. Yeah. I think if a great model to look at is what they have over in the UK. Mm-hmm. They have the Professional Footballs Association. Um, if you go into more detail, it was founded in 1907, 4,000 members. Um, you know, it, It's aims to protect, improve, and negotiate the conditions, rights, and status of all professional players and their bargaining agreements uh, with the player, the agents, and the clubs. And... You know, I don't know how that will come about in terms of all the leagues, but that's would be that will that's what would be needed here in the U.S. to make sure that players have um, those living wages that everyone uh, wants and desires, um, just to make sure that they can do what they need to do um, week in and week out, and you know, live a comfortable life. 